1: Hello and welcome to the Red Box Podcast. It is the final day of half term Luke Jones before class and Smoking Behind the Shed resumes with Matt on Monday. Today on the podcast, the Blair Referendum Project. Two Blairs who ran campaigns in the first Scottish independence referendum, Blair Jenkins from Yes Scotland and Blair McDougall from Better Together, will reflect on lessons learned and what might happen if there's a second Scottish independence referendum. First, though, our columnists, Esther Weber and Robert Crampton. Right, both. Um, the matter of business. Uh, so, later today, we're going to hear this uh, big speech from Sir Keir Starmer, um, setting out his his vision, some economic policy. Um, Esther Webber, I, I read somewhere, I think the Labour list was describing it as lengthy. <laughs> yeah, that, that makes it sound like a
2: bit of an ordeal, doesn't it? Um, but I think the point that was uh, trying to be made there by Keir Starmer's supporters is that. This is something of substance, it's something hefty, um, and it's something for people to get their teeth into to show a bit more of what Labour's direction is and what they want to achieve, um, which is obviously something they've come under a bit of criticism for over the past few weeks, um, and particularly the message today is about focusing on the economy and saying that Labour can be a party which is responsible with the country's finances. So I think
1: that's the that's the
2: message they're looking
1: to put forward today. And Robert, do you think that? This will do the trick. Does a big set piece set piece speech mean that Kirsten Wolvers and work will cut through if he hasn't been already?
3: Uh, I suppose it's the beginning of that process. I mean, one speech seldom uh, makes much of an impact, especially at the moment. But he's got to start somewhere. We're looking. We're starting to see the return of uh, business. Well, politics as usual. I mean, or it's, it's being foreshadowed. That like, you can see that happening, and he's trying to say. I mean, it's ten years now since Labour was in government the famous you know the money's run out note which hung over them for a decade he needs to banish that uh and but at the same time he's talking about making a more equal society with means spending money so it's a very it's a difficult circle to square we you know we're going to be financially responsible and sensible but we're also going to uh pay people you know pay public sector workers more and invest more and level up and all the rest of it so it'd be interesting to hear is mean, what's what is uh what his thoughts are on that
1: Esther, I keep seeing this prefaced with the phrase, oh, Keir Starmer has had a, a bad few weeks, he's had a tricky start. Um, there are murmurings about his leadership. Is any of that right?
2: Um, well, I mean, with with any sort of um, polemical point, I guess, about the leader, it can be taken too far and maybe, maybe the case has been overstated in the past few weeks. <laughs> But it's definitely true that you didn't have to travel very far to find uh, labor sources willing to complain about the lack of energy or definition um at the top of the party and that's the those are the kind of gripes we were hearing um and and I think also um some people would would call attention to the polls and the fact that he has fallen behind Boris Johnson as the, um, most liked for Prime Minister in recent weeks for the first time in a long time. Mm. Um, but, you know, to to give the other side, we are, as far as we know, a long way out from, from an election and it's not unusual for the polls to kind of Dance around the
1: le- level mm. pegging at this stage. <laughs> well, uh, it's Keir Starmer's speech is at eleven. Uh, we will uh, lovingly fill it some best bits for you at eleven thirty with some live analysis, so you don't have to sit through the whole lengthy thing. <laughs> um, Robert Crampton, the other story which I'm, I'm I'm keen to ask you both about is um, these, the the toing and froing in the cabinet. Lord Frost um, now working his way up to, to a cabinet position, usurping Michael Gove. Lots of cabinet criminology, which I'm not sure I can quite make <laughs> sense of.
3: Well, Esther would know more about this, but I think I'm right in saying that a couple of Gove's uh, people, as it were, were uh, promoted recently, and this is obviously yeah. Boris. This is Boris hitting back, isn't it? I mean, it's uh, Boris does not trust Michael Gove. Presumably, he'd be a fool if he did, given what Gove did to him uh, a few years ago when he uh, was running, going to run for leader the, the first time. Uh, so, and he's and he's lost Cummings. So, uh, yeah, obviously Boris has brought his own man in.
1: Esther?
2: Um, Michael Gove's been a fascinating figure so far in this government, although still a bit kind of shrouded in mystery because he has been leading uh, so far in government on Brexit preparations, which is obviously a massive job. But there are many parts of government business he isn't... um, connected to, he's also um, closely involved in strategising on the future of the Union. Mm. Um, so even though this has been interpreted as a bit of a uh, kick in the teeth for him, the fact that this Brexit responsibility within cap would be transferred largely over to Lord Frost as the new minister, even that having been said, um, some people are seeing it as possibly this opening the way for another job for Michael Go for something more prominent, um, and also it is people close to him saying he, he was supportive of this <laughs> appointment. So basically, if you're trying to work out who's up and who's down, <laughs> good luck to you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, assume, uh, Robert, that Michael Gove is up. And as I said, there was some suggestion in the papers this morning that it might be that he's being lined up to be Home Secretary or Health Secretary in, or... in, uh, in the near future. Um, what would you make of that?
3: Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Like you, said, like Esther says, he, his, what he does is is shrouded in mystery, and you, got, you kind of get the impression that maybe he does everything. He kind of does the bits that Boris doesn't want to do, uh, which is the which is the, oh. the detail, and uh, obviously that is very useful for Boris, but he doesn't want to get see him getting too powerful, I guess. Uh, so what do I make of that? Uh, being Home Secretary. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's he's what's he done? He's done education. He's done justice. He's now done Brexit. He's done. I guess I think he's done a lot of the pandemic stuff. Hmm. So yeah, maybe it's maybe it's time for him to uh, have a look at that. Uh, Esther, you you'd know, you you know more. <laughs> um, well, I mean. We're, we're
2: still a way off from a reshuffle, I think, because mm. the consensus seems to be that we need to wait until this immediate phase of the crisis has, has passed. Um, but yeah, his position within any reconstituted cabinet will be absolutely fascinating to see. And I guess even though he has been at the top, of government for a long time he hasn't done any of the of the big four jobs yet hmm.
1: and of course there is still a a pandemic uh brewing and, and continuing um yeah you both want to want to touch on that in different ways um Robert first of all your column this saturday is going to be about um what was a routine appointment at, at dermatology but i imagine how confusing how difficult was that in a in a global health emergency
3: well it was surprising it was amazingly easy. I just I was just getting a mole checked out and uh which is absolutely fine. Uh and uh it took me to my local hospital and I was just incredibly impressed by how uh uh I know there's this terrible backlog of uh of, of people who haven't been seen for various things much more serious than mine, but uh I was just impressed at the speed of the appointment, the the fact everything was uh so efficient and calm and on time and it was great, and that's kind of what I'm writing about, but with it, because it's a light-hearted column, there are inevitable, hilarious consequences as well. So. Such as? Yeah. I, I must have been ner- more nervous than I thought, because as I approached the receptionist, I, uh, the, her computer, the back of her computer was facing me, and I got it into my head that she was called Lenovo. Because <laughs> <laughs> the, the branding on the computer was, it was, it was exactly the same height as where a name tag would have been. <laughs> on her shirt, and I said, "Oh, hello, Lenovo. How are you?" Uh, but luckily, we both had face masks on, and I think she just, she just, she just chose to ignore that, which is very wise. She just thought so he's, been, he's oh, not well. I, he's not well. So, although I, I was fairly sanguine, I thought I was fairly sanguine about it. I was put. I was obviously more rattled than I thought.
1: <laughs> Good grief! Um, and Esther, um, you want to talk about this um, Max COVID vaccination plan for, for prisoners? and and staff, and how prisoners could be vaccinated before large swathes of of the population, and this is being considered by governments at the moment.
2: Yeah, I I think it's a really interesting story and we've got a piece in Redbox today from one of the charities that helps uh, try and prevent reoffending that NACRO and they're also calling for prisoners to be given priority and that view is put forward in the story by health experts as well. You say there's a sort of similar public health case to care homes. And you have a lot of people living all in close quarters um, who um, are going to easily spread it if, um, if they get it. And also lots of people with other... Conditions or mm. uh, traits that can make them vulnerable, um, but it's a really it's a really interesting one in terms of the politics because mm. care homes is kind of a no-brainer in a way in theory, and prisons would obviously be highly controversial, um, and it's interesting to see whether the government will. Resist
1: that because it is that would be a hard sell, wouldn't it, Robert? I mean, I remember when the Sun had on the front page the fact that Levi Belfield had been the murderer had been, um, had a letter to say that he could be expecting a vaccination. System. Yeah, look, people were up in arms about that. It's a very yeah. kind of thing that gets people angry. Well, yeah,
3: and, and looking at the looking at the below the line comments on, the, on our piece today, uh, a similar reaction. Uh, people mm-hmm. saying, I um, mean, the consensus is basically vaccinate, vaccinate the prisoners that was the uh, that was the thrust of it uh, yeah
2: and you can't really imagine a home secretary less uh disposed no. to to go for that than than pretty
1: but that is yeah. the that is the next thing for us all to argue about isn't it esther the what happens post the 9 mm. Priority groups. And I know it has been suggested in, in some of the reporting that actually we'll just continue down the ages, but there will still be yeah. more louder and louder calls for yeah. police officers or teachers or whoever to, to jump. The
2: yeah, key. there will definitely still be arguments over this. And we had a poll in. Red box this week about asking people who they thought should be given priority and there was a majority just over 50% for teachers Quite uh, for police officers as well oh. I think 25% a bit less for soldiers right down the bottom I'm sorry to report was MPs who, who only 1% thought MPs should get priority <laughs>
1: What about
3: you, Robert? Did you think
1: there's a case for for yeah, profession and it's a tricky part? one? I
3: mean, I'm, I'm 56, so I, I think I'm in group I'm in group nine. But I, if uh, if somebody said to me, "Oh, there's this 40 year old teacher who needs a vaccination ahead of you," I would find it hard to argue that she shouldn't have it. Hmm. Similarly, a, a, a police officer, or I mean, frankly, a lot of people. Uh, would probably be uh you know more vulnerable more exposed than 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 i am uh and i'm uh but i would as things stand i would be due to get it before them so yeah it's going to be it's an argument it's going to be a big argument and this and the i mean the prison one is i mean the politics of it as esther says are just absolutely horrible aren't they to say to say that uh some awful person. Uh, bearing in mind that most people in prison are not awful people, um, I could argue that most people in prison probably didn't ought to be in prison in the first place. But uh, the ones that uh, did that do deserve to be there. They, yeah, I mean, that's a very yeah hard sell. Is putting it mildly.
1: That was Esther Webber and Robert Crampton. More from them in the paper. Remember, you can pick up a copy or subscribe online. Next on the podcast, the Blair referendum project.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at Lutonrising.org.uk Should I stay or should I go now?
2: Should I stay or should I go now?
1: Well, with Brexit, the pandemic, just recent SNP split over Alex Salmond, the comings and goings of Scottish Tory and Labour leaders. The expectation of and discussion around a second referendum has grown louder and louder. Uh, something reflected in the polls. It wasn't too long ago that the Sunday Times had that poll showing a majority in Scotland want to be asked about independence again. The Holyrood elections in May and the expected SNP majority, of course, could be the firing pistol. But what would F 2 look like? Well, we've the two men who ran the yes and no campaigns in the last one, in 2014. In a moment, Blair Jenkins, who ran Yes Scotland. First though, Blair MacDougall, who ran Better Together in a half hour we're calling the Blair Referendum Project. Firstly, is India F2 even likely?
4: I think on balance it probably won't happen anytime soon. And I think there's there's lots of reasons for that. One is that I think it suits both the SNP and the Conservative Party. To kind of tilt each other on this issue. It means they don't have to, either of them, talk about their domestic records. Uh, and so they can have this argument about identity and, and flags, and it pushes Labour off of the, the map. I think the more honest reason why I don't think we're going to have an, or an independence referendum anytime time soon is that the SNP government haven't done any of the kind of intellectual renewal of their case since since 2014. So the public finance position has completely changed. Their position on currency has completely changed. Brexit means that they can no longer claim that the EU provides a seamless border between uh, England and Scotland. And none of those big issues have been uh, even begun to be addressed uh, by mm-hmm. the SNP. So um, I think there's a lot of theatre um, around it at the moment. Um, uh, uh, now, it could be because of the sort of salmon inspired civil war that Nicola Sturgeon slightly loses control of events and and, and finds herself pushed into, um, you know, maybe a stance that is uh, less cautious than her instincts are. Um, but I think on balance, it probably isn't going to happen uh, in the immediate future.
1: But for the sake of this uh, program and item I'm going to get you to indulge in our our parlor game of uh, <laughs> if it is a foot. Um, but before we do could you lay out for us for anyone who doesn't know what your what your role was in the in the first
4: one? I was sort of tapped up to run the Better Together campaign so I was the chief executive I set up the the, the Better Together campaign, which was the cross-party no campaign uh, mm. in 2014.
1: And what would you say went well from that? If you were going to have to replicate that campaign for another independence referendum, what would you what would you
4: wholesale copy? There's lots that's changed, but the thing that's remained the same is that in Scotland you have these two very noisy tribes at either side of the spectrum kind of shelling each other, and they're doing that over the heads of you know, about a million undecided voters for whom this isn't really the passionate issue that it is for the people on the extremes. And I think the thing we got right in 2014, and it'll be something that someone else would have to do there another referendum is to keep that sort of laser focus on those undecided voters for whom this isn't really about flags and identity. It's about a pragmatic choice about whether they will be better off or worse off. Uh, from exiting the, the, the United Kingdom. And so I think that, that strategic focus was the thing we got right. And that kind of led to us being labelled as being a bit boring, a bit prosaic, and maybe the Yes campaign was more poetic. But
1: It was not just boring necessarily, but it was, it was also two head, two hearts was the thing you heard a lot. And I wonder if you'd yeah. try and be a bit more heart.
4: I think there is an emotional case to make, but I think what people who want to remain in the UK shouldn't mistake that for is that the case is about Britishness. Because for those voters in the middle, if this is a contest about national identity, uh, if that's what the frame of a referendum is about, then decide which wants to stay part of Britain loses because you're asking people to choose between two identities. What about the branding of the campaign?
1: There was obviously a, was a lot of way, if, if you're the no side of a referendum, it, it's quite hard to spin that as a positive. You had the whole no thanks uh, thing going on for, for a bit. Mm. Um, do you think you nailed that in Independence Referendum 1? And, and would you want to change how you approached it in Independence Referendum 2 where it's happened?
4: Well, we were conscious of that, which is why in the first phase of the campaign, we were better together. And the idea was we were transition into. Uh, if you like a more complete sentence which was no thanks we're better together, a kind of polite polite decline um, yeah. to, to the nationalist pro- proposition. And um, I think there's actually an open question this time as to whether it would be yes or no this mm. time uh, round. if there was another referendum. The uh, electoral commission have to test the question and when they tested a, a yes no proposition for the Brexit referendum they found that the yes pro- having a yes no proposition they didn't feel was balanced. So it'll be interesting this time round to see if the Electoral Commission stick with with uh, uh, their previous research from the 2016 um, uh, referendum.
1: What about the decision to bundle all the unionist parties together under one campaign? Is that something which you'd want to see happen again if Indyref 2 were to happen?
4: I think it's important to understand that in 2014, yes, the parties worked together, but that was really a legal necessity. So under the, the 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 law that governs referendums, if you want to spend money in the short campaign, the last few weeks of a campaign, you have to be a designated organisation. And to be a designated organisation, you need to demonstrate a broad support. So mm. there is still a need for something which is either cross-party or non-party. I think it's more likely, if there is another referendum, that it would be non-party rather than cross-party. That is to say, you would see some political figures coming together. So I think it's, if if there was another referendum, I think it's likely that it would be a different beast. And actually, given the way politics has changed, given the way the state of the parties in Scotland has changed um, since 2014, that's probably a better campaign strategy is to try to be a kind of non-party insurgency against a, an SNP government, which has been in power for, for, for more than a decade. But
1: you'd still have political leaders itching to get involved, wouldn't you? So it would have
4: to, to some degree have some kind of cross-party agreement and agreement on strategy. To an extent. I mean, I think, yeah, there will be politicians this time, but I think one of the one of the lessons, both of the Scottish referendum and again the Brexit referendum, is that personalities emerge from these campaigns. You think of the the various remain people who are not politicians, who are now Kind of national national figures with big big media following. The same thing happened in Scotland. So I think it's important, given these are political campaigns, to have people who are politically savvy. But you can create a kind of you know a cater of uh, political spokespeople as well.
1: But you would still have, I guess, Nicola Sturgeon fronting the Yes campaign if, if it can, if it happened while she was still first minister. And you would need somebody to be the opposite number to that. And I wonder who you think that might end up being. I,
4: I think Alistair, like myself, would probably view that he's done his shift. <laughs> um, uh, we were both, I think, like a thousand days of, of campaigning in, uh, uh, from 2012 to 2014. On Boris Johnson, I think it's, it's, it's important to remember in 2014, the thing that David Cameron did well was that he boxed clever. He consistently refused to be the villain that Alex Hammond wanted him to be. He consistently refused to engage every time the SNP said, "Well, you should debate with Alex Hammond. It should be the Prime Minister of England, uh, Prime Minister of uh, England, as they would say it, but as the, the rest of the UK versus the uh, First Minister of Scotland." And that was about trying to again create that frame that it was Scotland v Britain or Scotland v England. Mm-hmm. I think Boris Johnson would be wise to try to emulate David Cameron uh, in that way and stay in the background. This has to be a campaign led by um, Scots in Scotland, as it was um, in 2014.
1: What do you think, looking back on on uh, F one, as we'll now call it? What did the Better Together campaign? really screw up? Was there anything where you think actually if we had a clean slate again and we had another run at this we wouldn't do that?
4: We would have tried more to think beyond the referendum. The Conservative Party came out of the referendum in Scotland with a with an organisational plan of how the electorate would change and how they would exploit that. I think the Labour Party didn't. We didn't really have a sense of how the electorate would be changed by the experience and what the uh, Labour Party's uh, plan for for taking advantage of that what would be and the, the the implication of that has been that again for the Labour Party um, the SNP have eaten eaten our lunch in terms of people who voted yes um, and then the Conservative Party have eaten many of the, the the no voters that we had and we we're kind of left in the middle of the road, getting run over by traffic from from both directions. So I think, uh, although arguably it really wasn't my job to do that, I think uh, looking back uh, in terms of securing Scotland's place in the Union, having a clearer strategy for, for what it meant for the Labour Party is that the only party which could replace the SNP is something we should have we put a lot more thought into.
1: Looking at the other side, what do you make of how match fit or referendum fit the SNP are? and also the other parties in Scotland as well. How, if this were
4: to happen, is everybody ready? No, they're not. No one is. We have all of the ingredients, we have all of the arguments, but we don't have someone to cook hit those arguments. We've got Gordon Brown still on the, the pitch, sort of slugging away to mix my sporting metaphors. But we do need to develop a new generation of political voices. And I think actually a lot of the new people who will come in in the Hollywood elections will start to take care of that. On the other side, you still have Nicola Sturgeon as a very gifted communicator at the top of the SNP. But behind her, her entire party is wandering all over the political map. She's lost control of the the policymaking uh, apparatus of her party to some pretty eccentric uh, people. There is a real problem with the SNP. And people, people have, I think, noticed that there is a personality clash going on in the SNP as a result of the Salmond uh, uh, sort of inquiry and the fallout from the Alex Salmond affair. I think what's been less well noticed is that there is a big clash on policy there yeah. as well between... Nicola Sturgeon trying kind of in the face of events to maintain the idea that leaving the UK is a mixture of continuity, so keeping everything you like and change, getting rid of everything you don't like. And then this sort of insurgency in her own party partially organising around the Alex Salmond issue, who want to put to the voters a, a, a vision which is a, a much greater upheaval.
1: But, but on the unionist side, is Douglas Ross ready, Scottish Conservative leader, and let's assume Anasawa becomes uh, Labour, uh, Scottish Labour leader, is he ready as well? Um,
4: on Douglas Ross, I have no idea where, whether he's, he's ready or not. I, I don't think... So Ruth Davidson was very comfortable making an argument which was not contingent on what Boris Johnson felt because she didn't like Boris Johnson. It was fairly, fairly obvious. Douglas Ross hasn't found a language to do that yet. And I think that's really important to find that language for the side that wants to remain in the UK, because you've got to be able to use all of the issues around Brexit as a cautionary tale um, uh, against leaving a union rather than and making it the reason to leave the union. Anas, I think, will win the, the Scottish la- Labour leadership. And for the first time in a long time, we'll have someone who is really up for the fight. And I think a mixture of Anas being uh, up for the fight again and Keir Starmer having shown you know a real interest in, in this issue with the constitutional work that he and Gordon Brown are doing. I think there's a chance of, of the Labour Party getting back onto the pitch in a, in a serious way, which is um, which is encouraging. Um, I think the Conservative Party have a bigger problem though.
1: Are you a betting man, Blair? No, I'm not. I'm well, you not. are. You are today.
4: I am for these purposes. yeah. So
1: assume Ref two happens next year. What would the result be?
4: Be it yes or leave remain. It would be a vote to vote to remain in the UK. Confident. I'm, Extremely confident. The people of Scotland are not going to vote to cut public services, to put up a new border with England, and to change currency. They are simply not going to vote for that. Mm.
1: That was Blair MacDougall who ran the Better Together campaign in 2014 in the Scottish independence referendum. John Pinar at Drive, this afternoon from 4 on Times Radio.
5: We're going to be talking about the news. We're going to be discussing it and explaining it.
1: Join John Pinar for the Drive Time show dedicated to the news that matters and the views that need to be heard.
5: I'm going to give people the time and space to tell us what they think and I'm not going to tell you what to think, I'm going to help you make up your mind.
1: Trusted news, insight and opinion that speaks for itself. John Pinar at Drive this afternoon from 4 on Times Radio. This is Times Radio. Where well, we're joined by Blair Jenkins who was chief executive of the Yes campaign in the 2014 Scottish Independence Referendum. Hello. Good morning, Luke. Thank you very much for your for your time today and allowing us to continue our, our Blair referendum project. <laughs> um, uh, we just heard from, from Blair McDougall, who was, I guess, your sort of um, nemesis, your opposite number uh, in 2014. Um, I'm interested, when I started talking to him and I asked, first of all, h- how likely does he think a second independence referendum is? He seems pretty convinced that there wouldn't be one. What do you think?
5: Well, it, it all depends on what happens in the um, the Scottish election, which is exactly 11 weeks from today on May 6th. Uh, I think if the SNP uh, and, uh, and Greens, who are the two pro-independence parties, if they win a majority and every opinion poll is suggesting that they will, uh, then... The the question of a second independence referendum is the defining issue in the Scottish election. There's no doubt about that. We all know that. It's the defining issue. Should we or should we not have a a second independence referendum? Uh, If the SNP come out of that, having won it fair and square, and with that as a central issue, there will have to be a second Scottish independence referendum. So whatever uh, bluster we hear now, it would simply be to obstruct or deny democracy If that were to be the clear result in a fair and square election and uh, there were any attempt not to implement the result of the election. So I think uh, a lot of what's being said by Boris Johnson and others is is posturing pre-election. And I think uh, the the weight of argument, the democratic force of saying there has to be a second referendum if people in Scotland vote to have one, the people Mm. decide, then there'll be one.
1: Well, we'll get to that in a moment. Let's go back to 2014, uh, first of all, and and lessons learned. Um, I asked uh, Blair McDougall similar questions. I'm keen to know what, what your view is of the campaign you ran. First of all, things that things that went well, things that if you were to be in charge of Indie Ref2, you would wholesale copy.
5: I think the style of the campaign was absolutely right. Um, we we said it would be a campaign unlike anything that's scottish politics or british politics had seen before it was very community-based very local it was very much focused on grassroots on conversations that people were having at a local level Uh, and and that worked very very well Um, in the uh, in in the week i was appointed i was asked to uh i was asked to be chief executive of the yes campaign Uh, a poll came out that week which had um the independence vote at 27 percent uh in the summer of 2012 uh, now, as, as people know, two years later in, in, in 2014, that had grown to 45%. Uh, and, and of course, as people may also know, look, the, um, the polls now are showing um, pro independent support at 54%. Mm. So it's literally double what it was when we started back in 2012. So I think that style of campaign, very much uh, community-based, very local, very positive, very inclusive, I think this, the tone and, and style of the campaign would, would be the same.
1: But on tone, we you not worried, and would you not want to, to rectify the situation where that there was quite a it was quite a vicious edge, wasn't there, especially especially online.
5: Well, I think that has been, to be honest, look, I think that has been overstated, uh, and the reason why some people have overstated it is because they want to say, well, you know, it was such a terribly divisive thing, uh, you wouldn't want to do that again. The actual truth is it was a tiny number of people relative to the, the people who voted, the millions who voted. You're talking about a tiny number, literally a couple of hundred people on both sides. Who were misbehaving on social media, and it was almost all on social media in, this, in the streets and in the public meetings and the town halls and things. And I was all over the country taking part in this, and everything was done in a very uh, courteous and, and uh, respectful way. Didn't and Jim we Mur- had a, a fanta- didn't Jim Murphy have something thrown at him? Well, well, you see, but you're you're right, Luke. But of course, that is the one and only example people Ah, can point to, is that someone threw an egg at Jim Murphy. Now, I'm not condoning egg-throwing at Mm. Jim or anyone else, but uh, if you think about, for instance, how much more bitter and divisive and occasionally physical uh, the Brexit campaign and its aftermath were, then uh, the Scottish referendum, as the Electoral Commission said in their report, was a model for all future referendums in the UK. If the no campaign
1: was... Too head and not enough heart. Um, some people suggested that the Yes campaign was too um, heart, enough and not enough head. Would you agree with that? And would you want to tweak the balance between the two if you were to run the referendum again later?
5: Well, that is an interesting, an interesting point. Um, the, the, the truth about the Scottish referendum is that we did go into an incredible amount of detail, uh, extraordinary detail about uh, what an independent Scotland would be like. And um, as is probably known, I mean, more or less everybody in Scotland temporarily became an expert on currency Hmm. in the course of the 2014 election. You know you could get into a taxi cab and the, the driver would be talking to you knowledgeably about what a fully convertible currency is or what a reserve <laughs> currency is and so you know the level of engagement and debate was quite fantastic and uh, it, it brought so many young people into politics on both sides and, and we're still seeing that level of engagement in scotland so i think i think emotionally we were, the pitch was right we, we we set out to be very positive uh, as i say very you know respectful very inclusive uh, and, I, and I think we succeeded in that. What, what will really change in this campaign that's coming, I think that the huge difference between then and now is, of course, Brexit. Yes. That's, what's trans- that's what's transformed the position because, and again, I know, you know, you, your listeners elsewhere in the UK may, may not fully appreciate this, just how big an issue the European Union was in the first Scottish referendum. It was literally the main argument used by the, the no campaign to discourage people from voting for independence. I mean, I took part in debates with just about every leading figure on the other side uh, in town halls in broadcasting studios, and so on, it was always the, the first or one of the very first things brought up. If you vote for independence you won 't be in the european union and one of the things that has shifted opinion so much in Scotland has been the, the fact that not just the fact that, um, that brexit happened, which is you know as you, as you know we, we voted sixty two percent to remain in uh, in the european union it's mm. uh, not just the fact of brexit but the, but because I think uh, it was such a big issue in 2014. I, w- I was talking recently to uh, uh, an, an academic from overseas who was looking into, in particular, why the, the, women, uh, uh, the, the, per- the percentage of women in Scotland who support independence has increased very markedly. Women in Scotland are now more pro-yes than men, which is a reverse of the 2014 situation. And uh, she was telling me that the, the big change for, for women was the sense of betrayal about 2014. They felt they were told the way to secure that that, that you'll stay part of the European Union is to vote against independence. Mm. And that sense of betrayal and that sense that uh, we are now out of the European Union and the only way back in for for Scotland, the only way back into the EU is to vote for independence.
1: But what has that done to the economic case, the UK now being out of the EU? Because then if if I'm imagining a second independence referendum now, what does that do to questions about the border about currency, that's all just got a lot more complicated, hasn't it, for, for the proponents of yes?
5: Well, I don't think so. I mean, if, if anything, I mean, most, most of the, the pundits, the experts seem to think that uh, the UK coming out of the EU has actually shifted the balance in the economic debate. I mean, I believe I, I didn't want Brexit to happen and I, I was strongly against Brexit happening. I, I wish it hadn't happened. But um, it it, 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 is going, it is now and will going forward inflict a lot of economic damage on the UK. So in terms of which is the riskier option, um, I think that's something that people have, have begun to think about in Scotland. And it's one of the things that's making people more open to independence and changing their minds. But I just wonder um, about it-
1: what we're seeing about uh, the uh, border on the island of Ireland and things like that. And if Scotland says, OK, we'll vote for independence, but we want to rejoin the EU in the single market. Does that mean you know, customs checks and things on the border between between Scotland and England? All of that kind of debate comes into play, doesn't it?
5: Well, I think that you're right, that will form part of the, the discussion is what will the you know, what will the arrangements be. But as we've seen uh, in the end, despite their best efforts, the UK government were actually able to get a deal in the end with the, with the European Union on what the relationships would be going forward. Uh, and I'm in no doubt that there would be special arrangements in place uh, with, between Scotland and England, as it is on the island of Ireland. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sure that everyone would want to have uh, good, open and free-flowing trade uh, going forward. But it's an interesting thing, you know, we... Um, uh, one of the, the arguments that's sometimes made uh, is uh, against Scottish independence is the fact that so much of our trade is with the rest of the UK. It's about sixty-three, sixty-four percent of our trade by value is with the rest of the UK. Hmm. But but if one looks at uh, at Canada, um, you know, seventy-five percent of their trade of their export trade is to the united states and i can tell you there is no campaign in canada to become part of the united states you know you don't you don't have to be absorbed into your biggest trading partner so i i think the economic argument which i i would have said was probably fought to a draw in 2014 i wouldn't say we won the economic argument i think we 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 held our own on that front we won on every other aspect of the debate but i think that the the economic Mm. argument has shifted towards the yes campaign
1: Blair jenkins would you like to make a bet with us
5: um, yes, About, uh, uh, about
1: uh, I guess we've already had the question of the likelihood of, of a second independence referendum, um, but I'm keen to know what you think the result would be. Blair McDougall was, uh, was adamant it would be no. He, he thinks that the case has been strengthened for no.
5: Well, all that experience is that uh, when you get in front of people and when you have the discussion the movement is towards yes. That's been the experience of this. This issue has dominated Scottish life, Scottish politics for the last 10 years. So I'm confident that once we actually start the independence uh, debate, the independence campaign properly, the movement would be towards yes and and Scotland will vote in favour of independence.
1: And that was Blair Jenkins, who ran Yes Scotland in 2014 in the Scottish independence referendum. Before that, we heard from Blair McDougall, who was chief executive of the Better Together campaign. That is all we've got time for on the Redbox podcast. Remember, you can like and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from, and you can listen to us on the Times Radio app. In fact, I've realised the whole week of doing this podcast while Matt had been away, I haven't plugged my own show on Times Radio enough. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, breakfast, 6am till 10am you're stuck at home you haven't got anything better to do so you may as well tune in don't worry Matt will be back next week in the meantime do subscribe to the Redbox email every day thetimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe is where you need to go